Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. Nadia Kellum, Associate Professor in the Polytechnic School of the Ira A. Fulton Schools of Engineering at Arizona State University. Prior to joining the Polytechnic School, she was an Associate Professor at the University of Georgia. I have had the pleasure of knowing Nadia for about 10 years, and I always know she's pushing the boundaries, and I can count on her to have work that is intriguing, that energizes me, that's a little different. She's worked on some fascinating topics like STEAM, which is putting art in STEM, makerspaces, and emotion in education. So instead of just discussing one particular topic, since Nadia has continued to do so many different cool things, I've asked her to give us a sense of her own narrative to inspire us all to think outside of the box. So narrative narrative. <laughs> this will be cut out. Yeah. <laughs> Nadia, welcome to Research Briefs. Thanks so much, Ruth. Um, yeah, I've always, I've always enjoyed our conversations and our chats, um, so I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this, this cool podcast that you're doing, this cool thing that you're getting into, but thank you. Thank you. So to start us off, can you tell us a bit about your pathway into engineering education research? Sure. So, um, so I started doing engineering education research as a PhD student. So I was in a traditional mechanical engineering program and did all my degrees in mechanical engineering. And I had done sort of on the side, done some you know conference papers and gotten a little bit into engineering education. And I um, did a dissertation, or I was trying to figure out a dissertation topic. And I had gotten to the point where I'd taken all the required courses, you know, for my PhD. So I'm basically, like, I just need to figure out the proposal, figure out what I'm doing. And my advisor kept... That little piece, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just a minor detail. <laughs> yeah. And my advisor had wanted me to do something around, like, industrial parks. And I remember... Like, it was an, I was in a lab for sustainable solutions, so I'd go and, like, read all this stuff. I had these big binders full of articles and trying to find a niche or something that made sense for me to do in there and something that I, you know, cared about and, you know, could go through through with. And I went through a couple of different topics like that and just wasn't happy at all. Um, and finally, um, after some time, I think my advisor noticed that I wasn't happy, and I thought about doing something with the engineering education, and I was interested in complex systems, so something between those two. Um, and finally, he, he sort of gave me the opportunity. He said, well, what would make you happy? And I'm like, this would make me happy. He's like, okay, do that. Um, so that was so that was awesome to have that sort of opportunity, you know, in a traditional mechanical engineering program. Um, I remember when I decided that and started, you know, doing the research proposal and sort of started moving through the process, um, other faculty started asking me sort of what I was doing and sort of what I was thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so there was concern about, like, what are you going to do with with this engineering education? And this was sort of at the cusp of, I think just, I think this was just before the Virginia Tech and Purdue had started 
excuse me, schools of engineering education. So it was, it was sort of a a new thing, you know, or something that they hadn't heard of before. It's like, are you going to go into administration? Like, what are you going to do with this? I'm like, I don't know. This is just what I'm excited about and what I'm passionate about. And this is what I want to do. And I'll see what happens later, you know? Um, So it was kind of, it was kind of cool to be able to do that. Um, And then, and then I ended up, which I thought was a little bit funny later on, I'm sure they were all sort of amazed by it, but people that had done more traditional mechanical engineering dissertations, you know, stuff with automotives and engines and whatever, they were having trouble getting placed into faculty positions. And these were good, like really good PhD students, some of my Mm -hmm. colleagues. Um, And then I did this weird, whatever, engineering education, whatever dissertation, and then I ended up getting a job right away, (laughs) a faculty Mm -hmm. position at at the University of Georgia. So it sort of ended up, it ended up working out in the end, but I definitely didn't know it would work out. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure what I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that sort of started the whole like just doing things because it felt right and then hoping things would fall into place later on. Um, right. right. So when you were thinking about complex systems, mm-hmm. what part of that began to intrigue you? So were you, you were thinking about how students learned complex systems or versus just trying to map out the system or? Yeah, so um, when I was an undergraduate student, um, I actually transferred to an engineering school, so did a pre-engineering program. And when I got into it, so I was at a liberal arts school first, and when I got into the um, engineering school, that my junior and senior year, by the senior year, I was totally bored with my classes. Like, it was very much these, um, you know, making lots of assumptions and looking at these really simple systems, you know, in mechanical mm-hmm. engineering. And so at first it was, it was difficult at first, but then once you sort of figured out how to do the equations and, and whatnot, like it wasn't that difficult. And I, f- I felt like there was just something really missing from my education. So it was never thinking about, I don't know, the people in the system or how, how, you know, things emerge in systems and complex yeah. systems. And so the complex systems really sort of made sense to me that this was something, you know, we, we need to know the details and we do need to be able to drill down and get into the, the math and equations and stuff. But we also, I feel like engineers also need to have a broader understanding of sort of mm-hmm. what's going on. So being able to go up to the, you know, up into the air or whatever and seeing the bigger picture and what is, you know, yes, I'm designing a bridge or, so, or a dam or something, but how is that going to impact the local ecosystem? You know, how is that going to impact, you know, who can cross that bridge? Is there a, mm-hmm. Um, is there a, like a tight tunnel where only people that are in, in their own cars that own cars can get get through it or and then it limits people that are on buses so they can't go to that area? You know, like trying to think more about about um, systems in a more you know complex sort of way. Um, I think for me that that interest in complex systems is what sort of it eventually led me into qualitative research. Um, and then, mm-hmm. and then eventually led me into like narrative research methods and some of some of these things. And now, now looking back, I, I'm like, oh, it all makes sense. <laughs> but at the time, it didn't necessarily. Um, yeah, they always say that um, you know what happens and emerges in your life in a forward direction when you look back, you can mm-hmm. see the pattern that isn't there. Yeah. Why did you say so? You went from complex systems and being able to look at um, problems in a, pro- uh, a broader way. Um, do you remember a bit about the steps of what 
came next as you began investigating different areas? You get this job at UGA, and kind of what happened after that? Yeah, so the I, I learned a lot in the process of the dissertation. So I, I had one of my one of my committee members, he was like, you need to make sure you have, you need to triangulate. And, and to him, that meant that I needed to do basically a mixed methods. So like I looked at websites and those sort of as artifacts. Then I did a qualitative, you know, focus groups and interviews, so focus groups with students, interviews with faculty. And then I also did quantitative surveys that I sent out. So it was this, like, basically almost, it could have almost been three different dissertations. Um, yeah. and, and what I learned in that was that the, the survey part of it, like I, I got what I thought I was going to get, which mm-hmm. is, it wasn't a, well, now that I know more about instrument development, it wasn't the best, you know, example of, of a survey or an instrument. But for me, it was just like this, this qualitative research is so much more rich. You know, there's so much more to that. Um, so that, I think that was what sort of led me into, into doing qualitative research. Um, so yeah, I interviewed at, uh, the University of Georgia, and I think I was the fourth person interviewed. I think I was the, you know, like sometimes you'll bring someone in and you're like, looks like there might be something to them, but probably not, but we'll just bring them in anyways. <laughs> and, so, right. um, and I think I, I'm pretty sure I was that person. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so they, so they brought me in and then they ended up loving me. Like they loved the sort of the complex systems, I think aspect of things. I don't know, for whatever reason, they just, they just really loved me. So I ended up getting, you know, I was really fortunate to end up getting that job. Um, but then I was in the, it was the agricult- agricultural and biological engineering department within the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm the second female faculty. I think, I think at the time it was 50 or 55 faculty. So I was the second female. Um, there weren't, at that time, there weren't many assistant professors. Um, and then I come in and I'm doing you know, starting to build this research program where I'm doing qualitative research. And so I was definitely sort of an odd duck, you know, for a while. Um, right. Fortunately, a couple of years later, we hired uh, Joe Falter. And so then I had, you know, sort of a, a counterpart or someone else that was doing engineering education research. And, you know, and it was really exciting to be able to, to work with him and talk to him and, you know, explore ideas and stuff together. Um, but, but prior to that, it was, it was a bit difficult um, and, and then I, <laughs> I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but then I, I had a, we've got time. We've got time. <laughs> so I had, I had done some research around sort of art and engineering and I had a great collaborator in art education and then someone in creativity. And, um, and then eventually we added Joe to the team also, but looking at this sort of this transdisciplinary studio where we had art and engineering students and we started, um, started the research project. We were planning to do a case study and it was sort of an intervention, you know, doing this thing. And we, um, it was, it was super cool. And like a lot of really interesting stuff emerged out of it. We would do focus groups with students throughout the semester. Um, so really, really interesting dynamics that sort of emerged. Um, and as we started doing the research and started analyzing the data, I started to feel like something was just missing. You know, like we had this rich data but then, you know, when you start doing the codes and sort of categories, like we were losing the voice of, of the participants. And these really powerful stories that these, these students had were just sort of lost, you know, in the... And I guess, I guess that's what sort of happens whenever you start looking across lots of data. Um, 
so that was when I was like, I feel like there's something else to this that we're, we're sort of missing out on. So that's when we started looking at um, narratives as a possibility of a way of, of keeping the voice of the students, you know, in the dissemination efforts. Um, so that was kind of cool. And then the other thing that we came to was the, like, the role of emotion in learning and in student learning. So we had always, before... Or I don't know, a lot of times in engineering, I think we like to think, you know, we're analytical and logical and think in this, you know, it's very cognitive sort of based. Um, but we started started reading stuff about emotions or started seeing stuff that we couldn't quite make sense of and then started reading about the role of emotion and learning and that they're not, they're not separate. It's not a right brain versus left brain thing, but they're actually intertwined. And for us to make decisions, you know, for example, we have to have we have to have the emotional capacity also to make good decisions. Um, so then I started looking into emotions and this totally new, completely new, you know, big area. Um, and that was around when I was writing a career grant. Um, and I remember I was, I was super excited about it. And so I told my, one of my mentors at UGA and he was like, look, Nadia, like this is, I think this is a really bad idea. Like, emotions, like, you know, like I'm the second female faculty member in this really sort of traditional land-grant university, ag and biological engineering, you know, agricultural and environmental sciences, and then I'm a female, and then I'm doing qualitative research, and then I'm going to study emotions. <laughs> He's like, just wait. You know, wait until after tenure. <laughs> just, you know, I think it'd be better not to have the word emotion on your CV. And so, so I was a little devastated by it, you know, because this was sort of, you know, it was what I was excited about, what I was passionate about. I knew it was risky, the whole writing a career grant about it, because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something I had developed sort of throughout my career so far. It was this new area that I was interested in exploring. And after after thinking about his advice for a while, I just decided, you know what, I'm not going to worry about it. Like, I'm going to mm-hmm. do what, I'm going to tell the story that I want to tell, you know, and I'm going to do the things that, that make sense to me at the time and hope that they work out for the best, you know, um, I don't know, like if I hadn't gotten tenure, you know, then, then this isn't the right place for me. If, it, if it's a place that doesn't value my work and my contributions, even if it's around emotions, then, then maybe it's not a good, good place for me. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I ended up not, I ended up not getting the career grant. Um, it reviewed really well though. So I just mm-hmm. resubmitted it for, it's what used to be RFE. I don't know what it was called at the time. Re maybe. But anyways, they um, it ended up getting funded so shortly after that. And I think with the NSF funding, it sort of helped. Right. <laughs> you know? right. It's like, okay, well, someone thinks this is valuable. <laughs> we don't get it. but um, Money is green no matter what the strange topic, right? Yeah, that's right. And NSF money especially was, was very green in that, in that program. <laughs> yes. So a little bit selfishly, I'd like you to, if you would, say a little bit about the narrative methods, because we haven't had a guest yet um, who used it. And I know people tend to point to your work as a place where it's been used in engineering education research. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you could just kind of introduce it to the listeners a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So narrative research methods, um, there's not, like, like most qualitative research methods, there's not sort of a formula that you can follow or a specific way to do it. Um, one of the things that I think is true for all of my research now is I always do narrative interviews 
for the most part. Because um, with, I don't know, I guess I'm always interested in things, you know, like identity development or the experiences of underrepresented students or, or whatever it is. And the narrative, sort of hearing people's story and, and the things that they choose to include as part of their story can really help you get to some of that richness of their of of the data and of of what makes them sort of unique um so with narrative interviews i sort of start with a just a really general question you know something basically like so so if i was doing an interview with you i'd be like so ruth so i'm really interested you know in your story and i'd like you to to tell me your story feel free to take as much time as you like but I'd like to know, you know, how you got to the point you're at now where you're a full professor, you know, in Purdue. And this could go back from when you were a child or when you were an undergraduate. But, you know, so trying to encourage people to sort of think back and sort of make connections across their their sort of background. Um, and that's um, sort of the narrative part of the interview. And I'll, sometimes that'll take 30 minutes, you know, 40 minutes. And that's awesome. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. people are a little bit more abbreviated or they're not used to taking long turns like that. So they'll right. sort of shorten it. Um, and then you enter into sort of more of a con- conversational phase. And what that looks like is so the, the interview protocol is super easy to write. But, but what, what that looks like is that, oh, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, I don't I don't know. You mentioned uh, getting getting full professor. So can you tell me about that process or can you tell me more about that? And so then, you know, like keying into certain points of their of their story are things that you're interested in, and then just getting them to tell you more about those those specific windows, sort of in their in their story. Um, so that's what a lot of the interviews look like. And then um, for the analysis of them, it can it can take a couple of different forms. Um, so some of the stuff I've done is sort of falls into the narrative analysis category, where you basically mm-hmm. construct narratives out of out of the data. Um, so this could look like, it could be that I take, so say I did an interview with you, I could take your interview and and, cre- and construct a narrative from that interview. Um, a lot of times I like to try to use all your words. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to change, you know, add some connecting words and stuff so that right. it flows. Um, although you don't have to do that, it could be from my perspective, or from the researcher, but I always like the voice of the participant. So right. um, the other the other way to do it would be to say I interviewed you and a bunch of, you know, and I don't know, a, a lot of other people. And then I could create sort of or construct sort of fictionalized narratives, um, but based on the the themes and the, the stuff that I found in the stories and the patterns that I found in the stories. Uh-huh. Um, and that can be valuable in some cases where you really want to protect sort of the anonymity you know, we did an interview recently with a trans student at a private institution, you know, and it, it would be sort of easy to identify who that person was possibly. So then trying to think about other ways to, to sort of present those. Um, and then the other thing you can do is sort of an analysis of narratives. And so Mm -hmm. this could look more like what, what we're used to seeing, you know, in engineering education, where we, we have these narratives, we collected, you know, we, we did these narrative interviews with however many people, and then we could start, you know, we could use some coding or, you know, some of like Johnny Saldana's, you know, like different codes and different levels of codes to try to start to see what are the patterns across the different interviews and the different stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of different ways of approaching it. Um, right. I don't know if that's enough of an overview. But there, the, I mean, the thing is, I think a lot of times people that are new to something are like, well, what is the answer? Like, what is the right way of doing it? And right. there's just there's just not, you know, like you have to 
think about what, what's important to you, how you want to, you know, disseminate sort of the results. The thing that gets sort of sticky with these is the, is really the dissemination. Mm -hmm. So, um, we did a project around faculty change. And so we were, we were interested in finding sort of those exemplar faculty, you know, like the, the ones that are, um, that have changed from sort of passive learning strategies in their classroom to really active strategies. Um, so we, we did that. We did these interviews with people from across the U.S., you know, really these superstar sort of faculty and, te- and educators. Um, and, and then, you know, we did it with the plan of this is going to be a narrative research study. But even then you start writing up, you know, like I think the, or one of the places we presented at was Reese. Um, and they have a really limited page number that you can, you know, so then it's like, okay, well, how do I, how do I include the stories of some of the participants right. in this really small sort of format? Um, then we transitioned, then we moved that into a journal article and, you know, expanded them some and included, uh, three stories in there from the participants, but it still was mostly in the researcher's voice, you know, with excerpts from the, from the interviewee. So it still felt, it, it. It just didn't feel quite right. Like I don't, I don't think it was valuable, but it didn't, didn't quite get to what I wanted to get to. Um, right. And we had part of my, with my research team with uh, Brooke Coley and Audrey Bocklage, we had created these, or constructed these narratives, you know, as a step in the analysis. So these really right. rich narratives. I'm like, it's just all getting lost. Um, and one of the the values I see in this work is that other people can read other people's stories or hear other people's stories and see that. It's not that you're just born being really good at active learning in your classroom. You know, like these things, like they, they encountered all kinds of barriers and difficulties and still sort of persevered. So it's really these really inspirational stories, but also really rich and complex. It's not a simple, oh, I wanted to do this and I tried it and it just worked well sort of stories. Right. Right. Um, so I was like, well, what can we do? Like, how do we, how can we share this, like share these stories with with people, you know, with, I don't know, engineering educators, with new new faculty or with older faculty that want to be inspired. Um, so we decided to write a book mm-hmm. <laughs> and do sort of a, um, sort of where each each chapter is basically a story of each, of, of the participants. Right. Um, in their words. So in their sort of spoken word, which is maybe a little bit strange. Um, so, so that's, so we're, I'm working on that now. It's due at the end of November. I'm not sure when I'll have time to, to finish it. But then, and then each of the the participants, because these are faculty, like they'll be the authors or the authors on those chapters. Right. right. Um, and so, and that's another thing. Um, I think Alice had mentioned it in in your interview or your podcast with her. But some people, you know, like you tell your story, like you want your name to be associated with your story. So, right. so we ask people, like, would you like this to be, you know, a part of this? And then they're involved you know, we check in with them to make sure they're still good with us, with us sharing their stories. Um, but I think most faculty, especially in this type of study, you know, they're, they're happy to, or they want to be identified, you know, right? Um, right. cause it's their story and it's their unique yes. story. Yes. Um, so it brings a lot of interesting sort of, sort of things along with it. Right. Choices you have to make. Now I hear you're also investigating a really method that you're yeah by <laughs> yeah so the the thing I'm super excited about right now um, we have this project it's around um, maker spaces and we're interested in 
trying to understand how engaging in makerspaces impacts students' identity development, um, especially students from underrepresented groups. Um, the sort of reason for doing this was we were, you know, engineering education as a system or higher ed, it's, it's a difficult system to, to make sort of widespread changes to. But we're like, these makerspaces are relatively new, you know, and they're really sort of spreading like wildfire. They're, you know, we're getting them all over the place and then lots of universities and engineering students have access to them. So it seemed like something that we could maybe have impact with, sort mm-hmm. of more, more easily have impact with. Um, and it seems like a powerful space to, to help people develop, especially underrepresented students, to develop their identi- identity and self-efficacy, you know, as an engineer. Um, so we, we did this, I don't know, it was sort of cool. We visited seven different institutions that had university-affiliated makerspaces, um, and, and it ended up being, I think, 10 makerspaces. And we interviewed, at each site, we interviewed at least eight students. It ended up being, I think, 67 students total. Um, and we'd really tried to target students from underrepresented groups. So, so in the end, I think we had like 80% that were from underrepresented groups. Um, and again, you know, it's a, sort of a similar story, but that, you know, it's a big data set. That's a lot of data. Um, right. So we start, we're in the, now we're in the analysis and dissemination phases of it. Um, and we're, you know, we are doing more traditional like coding and looking across and looking for patterns. Um, pulling out subsets of students. So we have a lot of, um, of black male students. One of them, we went to HBCU. So it's like this, this is a population we haven't done a lot of research around. So this seems like an opportunity to, to sort of look at that. Um, and so we're, do, we're doing different types of studies. Um, and I had attended a AERA conference so the American Educational Research Association, I believe, is the mm-hmm. acronym. Um, <laughs> and um, we, I had attended this conference and listened to this presentation, and it was about I poems. And this woman read some of these I poems, you know, during the during the presentation. And basically, um, I poems they come out of this listening guide that um, Brown and Gilligan had developed a while ago. So like from I think it was early '90s. Um, and they were feminist scholars and really interested in, in getting or understanding and focusing on the voices of the participants. Um, and so, you know, just sitting in that presentation, like, this is amazing and so powerful. And um, basically it involves you take sort of an excerpt, you know, from, from an interview transcript, and then you sort of underline all of the, the sentences that start with I. So anything with I, this is, and it started to change the way I interact with people. <laughs> I've started, I've noticed I start hearing, like you have I people and you people, like people that are really interested in talking about themselves and then people that are interested in learning from others. Um, but you, you underline all the I sort of statements in it and then, you know, organize them temporarily. So pull them out. And then I, I ended up adding adding some contextual stuff, and there's some you know some he and some some that don't necessarily start with I, but just to help so that it, it sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I just went to FIE, the Frontiers in Education Conference, and did a it was a work in progress session. So we did it was like ten quick interviews, you know, or quick sorry quick presentations. So like five minutes each, and it's 10 of them. And, of course, I'm the very last one. So at this point, people are like, <laughs> you can just tell they're just done, you know, sort of glazed yeah. over. Yeah, I'm like, how can I connect to the audience? I don't know. Um, but so I gave sort of a quick introduction and, you know, and asked some questions about, you know, like, have you ever felt like, 
the voices of your participants got lost, you know, in the in, in the data analysis phase of the research and in the dissemination efforts. Um, and so started asking some questions and people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've definitely had that. And then I read this poem um, and it was it was amazing. Um, should I read it? Yes. You think? Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. So this is a poem, and then I'll talk about it afterwards, but I might just read it without saying much about. And this is part of that Makerspace project. Um, so I was in there. I had a project. I was filing my project. I was doing some finishing on the wood. I'm filing. I know how to file. I had to. I had a class before. I was filing wrong. I did it, and it was beautiful. I know how to file. I'm filing upstairs, big file, perfect strokes. Guy is hovering behind me, and it's just like tisk, 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 tisk. I'm like, I don't know what he's doing. Cause I'm like, I'm filing. I'm just like, he's just like, no, no. I think he's like doing something else. He like touches me. Um, excuse me, excuse me, um, you're doing that wrong. I'm sorry? I was like, oh no. It's like, he, he starts doing it. He's like mangling the side of my piece. I was like, oh no, this. I'm like, I think I got this. He's like, okay. I don't know. I was just like, so now I'm like, this piece is mangled. I have to fix it. So, so this was a, um, the, uh, taken from a transcript with a black female at a private institution. Um, and when I read it at the, at the Frontiers of Education conference, like people were glazed over when I walked up there. And then people start leaning forward. And you actually, I saw some like tears in people's eyes. Um, and then, and then I finished and then we had sort of a poster session afterwards so people could come and talk to you or, you know, whichever ones they were interested in. Um, I had this man come up to me and he said, that's me. Like I did that. He said, I think I did that last week with a student. I had no idea how that was perceived by the student. You know, like he, he was just struck. He's like, I didn't, you know, he just never, never considered that, that he could be having this sort of impact on, on his students. Um, so to me, I was like, this is so powerful that right. this man that's engaging in makerspaces, this may change his behavior or at least get him thinking about and reflecting on his behavior um, right. of how, how these students are, you know, are interacting with him. And then, you know, and this student like there was some really cool stuff with this makerspace and the management, but then you have you know other students in the spaces and sort of where where people feel marginalized, um, right. you know, and you sense that empowerment. Like I know how to file, like I know right. how to do this. It was beautiful, you know, whatever. And then you have yeah. this person that just comes in and starts sort of taken away from that, or you know. Right. Um, so so that's the thing I'm super excited about right now. And and I think the power of the iPoem you read is that you can construct that image in your mind. Mm-hmm. A young woman who knows how to file fabulously and she made this beautiful thing and here's some guy saying, oh no, I know how to do it better and then mangling it. Yeah. And um, that is so much more powerful than making some academic statement about microaggressions or feeling marginalized, you know, that, yeah. 
that tells you more about what is the experience of feeling marginalized. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, I don't know, because you tell it was, you could tell it was a female from hearing it. You, you said it. Oh, did I say, I said, oh yeah, I said it at the end, but I was wondering if when I, when I was reading it, if you could tell, but no. yeah. No, because you yeah. said it at the end. Yeah. And I think yeah. that, um, you know, that I, I project something yeah. about the situation yeah. when you said that. Yeah. 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 And I, I guess part of I'm the excitement is sort of maybe eliciting that emotion or for, so people can really start to resonate with the participants and sort of yeah. feel like you're maybe standing alongside them instead of sort of staring at them or studying yes. them. So there's, yes. it seems to maybe like we're still as researchers, we're still in a position of power with our research participants, you know, like we're, we're choosing, I, even in this, like I, I had all these student narratives to look at, you know, I chose this one and then I chose this one excerpt. So there was still a lot of intentionality from, from me as a researcher and me choosing, you know, which stories to, to bring to the forefront. Um, but at least then you still bring their voice, you know, back into it. Um, and then also these are shorter. So it, so it, it can allow us to, sort of include or get the, the feel of the voice of, of multiple people sort of in, in a traditional journal article or in a conference proceeding. Um, right. So that's, that's kind of exciting. Well, that is, I, I can see why you're excited about that. That's really powerful and a way to be able to help people really create that emotion. Yeah. Inside of yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I think about people who are listening. So maybe, you know, if you, if you're doing analysis and something doesn't feel quite right, you know, it's okay to pivot and, and think, you know, even though I didn't, we didn't start this project going, oh, we're going to do this iPoem analysis, or we're going to follow, you know, even maybe even follow the listening guide. Um, but sometimes stuff, you know, stuff comes up and, you know, something just wasn't quite right. And, and there's nothing wrong with continuing to do the, the other stuff that you plan to do, but it's also okay to pivot and learn about other, you know, other research methods or try to find something that better aligns with, with what you're trying to, to do, you know, and sort of how you, how you can disseminate these, these types of things. Right. Um, and be okay sort of with, with experimenting and playing and trying something different. Um, so I, I would like to wrap up with a, a final question because I'm, I'm hoping that the podcasts do inspire people to try new things. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think your story demonstrated several times today was that you'd be in a situation and something just didn't feel right. You you were missing something. Mm-hmm. And that you then explored and either by serendipity or by reading, you encountered something that might work. Mm-hmm. But it was really risky. Yeah. And, you, you know, people explicitly, your mentor said, don't do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about what gave you the courage to do it anyway? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't know where it's sort of that came from. Um yeah, I don't know if it was, you know, a mom who was sort of a feminist, you know, and would sort of push us to to do good things and, you know, and be authentic to yourself. Um, I'm sure that was part of it. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It, it seems to be, I think maybe because of some of those experiences that I started to learn that that it was okay to to do what, what felt right to me mm-hmm. and to take that risk that, that maybe, you know, and, and I guess partially it may be because I'm from, you know, I have some privileges, you know, to where it did, it did sort of ended up, you know, ended up working out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but this sort of starting to be comfortable with, and even if, even if say I hadn't gotten tenure at UGA, you know, because I had had a motion quite a few times in my CV, right. um, even had I not gotten tenure, that would have been okay. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think I would have looked back and had major regrets that, oh, I really shouldn't have done, you know, I should have listened to my mentor. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done these, you know, done these things or done whatever, because it was, it, it really aligned with who I am and it was authentically me. Um, so I think it would have, it would have been okay. I might've had a, a very different life, you know, after that, after that point. Um, I think, I don't know. I think it's good to like, in that, in that particular situation, I was like, well, what, what'll happen? So like, what is the worst case scenario? Uh-huh. You know, like, am I going to starve? Am I going to go to prison? You know, like things will, things will be okay. <laughs> you know, right. Right. um, and I sort of had come up with a plan B, you know, with the whole tenure thing. Um, cause there, it was a little rocky along the road, sort of at the college level vote, but, um, I came up with this plan B and it was to become a professional skydiver. And I'm like, <laughs> which is something you do. Yeah. <laughs> which was, <laughs> it was a possibility for sure. I don't remember how many jumps I had, there, but probably 1500 or 1800 jumps and was competing at a national level. Like it could have been something we could have done. We probably would have transitioned from living in a house to living in a trailer, but what it would have it would have been a, a meaningful life. Um, but just being sort of okay with with taking like I think if you take the risk, then the the reward or the potential for reward is huge. Um, whereas if you don't take the risk, I don't know, you might just sort of be in sort of a middle ground. Like I don't, it'll be okay, but to me, it won't be like the most meaningful or the most exciting or most I don't know the, you know, the thing that really resonates with you, that gets you up in the morning and gets you excited about what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, I think that's important, or at least for me, it's important. Um, and, and now that, and I, now for sure, now that I do have tenure, you know, it's, it's easier to maybe to not be as worried about those things. It's one of those luxuries that tenure, tenure grants you. Yes. Um, where you don't have all those, have all those pressures and stuff. Yes. Um, but, but I'm, on the other hand, if, if you end up not getting tenure at your institution, I think it just, it, it isn't necessarily a reflection on you as not being a good scholar or as not being a good faculty member. I think, I think it really sort of reflects that the alignment just isn't there, you know, and the, the goals of the institution aren't aligned with your goals. Um, and so that's probably a good thing to figure out, you know, and maybe that's not somewhere where it, it may not be the best place for you to, to be empowered and to really blossom and to do, you know, do exciting and, and whatever things to push the boundaries. So, yeah. Well, I think people have a sense of why it's always so exciting <laughs> to talk with you. <laughs> I have this picture of you as this person that kind of looks for the sun, like a sunflower will turn towards the sun. I think mm-hmm. Nadia turns towards the sun, and perhaps uh, you know, being at an institution with the sun devils, perhaps. <laughs> 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 um, 
a good fit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. It's true. And they like ASU. We have this open access sort of mission, which is really awesome. Um, so it's not just about like letting in the upper crust or the best students, but letting in a lot of students and and more our value comes from what we produce or you know what they do whenever they leave us or sort of what they've right. learned. Um, and then they also really like change at ASU. And so for me, that just resonates with who I am. Um, right. so so yeah, it is a good a good place for me to follow my son. I like that metaphor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any last things you'd like to say to the listeners? Um, I don't know. I guess the maybe the other thing that maybe didn't explicitly come out was trying to find sort of other inspiring and empowering people to to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, that can make a big difference. You know, if you're just working alone in your office, which sometimes we're almost encouraged to do. Um, but if you can find people, you know, like when Joe came to, to UGA, like that was amazing. Um, recently I had a, or I guess a year ago, I had a faculty member or someone that was starting as a faculty member in December contacted me and he's like, I'm interested in doing this, this reef, you know, that, or the sort of early engineering education thing. And I wanted to find a mentor. And so we ended up working together. Um, his name's Terrain. And he's a joint appointment between arts, media, and engineering, and electrical and computer engineering. And then he has an undergraduate degree in philosophy. It's so cool. So we're we're working together, trying to. We got the grant, which is exciting. But yes. um, trying to understand sort of the epistemology of of these students that are in this transdisciplinary art, media, and engineering program, and then also looking at the more traditional students. Um, and then and trying to figure out how to understand epistemology. It's You can't just ask students, so tell me about your epistemology. Right. You know? um, so that's led us down this path to where now we're learning discourse analysis together, which is, it's just super cool. You know, like I really look forward to doing the work and then going to those meetings. Um, so trying to find people, you know, like that, that can help sort of inspire you and you can start learning together and... Right. Um, I think that's I think that's really really important to to take the time to try to find those those collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. agree. <laughs> so I feel that people have learned from you speaking about learning together, and uh, I certainly will continue to keep an eye on the cool new things you're doing and find ways to keep interacting with you. Yep. And thank you so much for being a guest on Research Briefs. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, Ruth Strevler dot wordpress dot com.